you. Well, as I said, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and point it to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one provided for you under the chair in front of you. Colossians, chapter 2. You'll find that one, uh, Colossians 2, and page 984 of the church Bible. Top left-hand corner, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be spending most of our time in three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, although I think I want to start reading a little bit before that in in, in verse 6. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 9, and then uh, we'll camp out verses 8, 9, and 10. And uh, get work get to work in this passage. It should be around 45 minutes or so. So I'll read, then we'll pray. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bondly, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, would you come now and give us ears to hear your spirit speak. Would you enable me, your servant, to serve faithfully and to serve well, and to deliver your word and truth to your precious people? Send your spirit this morning. Enable us to understand your word. Transform us and enable us to know you. And to go from this place, carrying the message of Jesus Christ with all that we meet. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Humans are a perpetually dissatisfied people. The Bible gives us loads of examples of this. It's brutal in its honesty about this. My wife and I came across one just this last week in our Bible reading together. Jacob fell in love with Rachel the moment he laid eyes on her. He asked for her hand in marriage in exchange for seven years' labor for her father. Well, what was seven years of hard work after all? He was in love. At the completion of his seven-year time, the wedding commenced. Jacob married Rachel. Or so he thought. In the morning, much to his surprise, he saw that he hadn't married Rachel but her older sister, Leah. Their father had tricked him. Now, I don't pretend to know how something like this can happen, but these were the days before indoor lighting, and a man, not generally given to perceptiveness, is maybe less so on his wedding night. He is, shall we say, sort of singularly focused on that night. But in the morning, Jacob threw a fit, and he agreed in order to marry Rachel, he would work another seven years for her father. 
Well, now he had two wives. Something God had never condoned. But Jacob was a man of his time. This is something that men did. To show their greatness, they would take on multiple wives. It was an ego thing. And it never worked out well. Jacob loved Rachel. But not Leah. And God was kind to poor Leah. And gave her children. While Rachel's womb remained closed. Leah hoped bearing sons for her husband would win his affection. The Lord gave her four sons, each one increasing her hope that her husband would love her. Still, Jacob loved her sister. Rachel, although loved by her husband, had no sons and envied Leah. And so she comes up with this harebrained idea to give her handmaiden to marry Jacob. And the handmaiden would give him sons, which Rachel would raise as her own. Isn't there a show about that? (laughs) Jacob, the bonehead, agrees to this. And Rachel's servant bears Jacob two sons. Well, not to be outdone by her sister, Leah, who had stopped conceiving herself, decided to give her handmaiden to Jacob to marry, and she bore him two more sons. Eventually, Leah bore Jacob two sons herself. There were baby boys coming out of the woodwork in this family, sort of like what happened in our church last year. Finally, the Lord answered Rachel's prayer and opened her womb And she bore a son. I want you to listen to sweet Rachel's words in Genesis 30, verse 24. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. There are probably multiple lessons in that story. Like, Polygamy is lunacy, that'd be one. But another is that humans are perpetually dissatisfied people. Leah had sons, but not love. And she sought to find love by having more sons. Still, she longed for love. Rachel had love, but no sons. The Lord had answered her prayer, and she had her husband's affection and a baby boy in her arms, and still she longed for more. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is not dealing with the craziness of polygamy. It seems by Paul's day, some folks had worked that one out. However, Paul is dealing with what would be the root of polygamy. This universal sense that what we have is not enough. That our dissatisfaction with what we have will be fixed if we just had more of what we have. After all, what's better than raspberry pie? Two raspberry pies. And so Paul is warning the Colossians about this. He's warning the Colossian church about a heretical teaching 
that Jesus is not enough. Hidden into the, in the bushes outside of the walls of their church lived this dangerous lie that Jesus was a step on the way to fulfillment for their desires in God. Jesus plus these other things equals fullness. And it's a lie, which leads to emptiness and enslavement. All false teaching sort of plays on the same lie that Jesus is not enough. That something else or something more is needed in order to get God. Well, I think that you will find Paul's warning to the Colossians particularly relevant to us today. I think that you will find his solution especially relevant to us today. To inoculate yourself against false teaching, the solution is always the same. Find fulfillment in Christ. So this is the main idea this morning. It's a rather simple one. Jesus is the fullness of God, so find your fulfillment in him. Jesus is the fullness of God, so find your fulfillment in him. You can see this written on the back side of your worship guide, and you're welcome to follow along as we go. Find your full fulfillment in Christ. So I have three points this morning from three verses. And the first point comes from verse 8. Human wisdom is empty and enslaving. Human wisdom is empty and enslaving. You see this in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it. There's an imperative. We talked last week about imperative verbs. It's a command. Paul is telling us in this passage, the only comparative in this passage, he's telling us, see to it. Do your part to guard yourself against false teaching. Be careful. Be on guard. Did you know that not everything that carries the name of Christ is Christian? There is a standard of truth that has been given to us by God. It can be found in God's word. And yet there are many false versions of this truth creeping around the edges of our churches, popping up on our Facebook feeds, appearing in our YouTube feeds. The apostle is encouraging the Colossian church to be active in identifying false teaching and avoiding it. The question is, how do you do this? How does one avoid, how does one keep oneself from being taken captive by false teaching? Well, the answer is, of course, study scripture. Of course, you know that the best way to identify a counterfeit is to know the real. There's a lot to be said about apologetics ministries, those ministries that exist to find error, to expose false teaching. And we're thankful for that ministry. By studying scripture, you have the double benefit of being filled with the joy in the Lord and also being protected from error. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. That phrase, takes you captive, it comes from the military arena. It refers to spoils of war. You see, because when it comes to false teaching, there's no free lunch. There's always a price to pay. False teaching will take someone captive, literally enslaving them. Paul describes this false teaching as philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits of the world, 
When Paul mentions philosophy, he's not talking about philosophy in general. Philosophy just means a love of, of knowledge, a love of wisdom. He's not talking about the general philosophy that you may have learned taking a, a philosophy 101 class in college. Although there's some things in that class that he may be referring to here. But remember, this is the first century. We're just a couple of decades removed from the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven after his resurrection. And the world is under the control of the Roman Empire. And the Romans were a religiously pluralistic people, sort of blending together all these different philosophies and all these different beliefs. So you believe this, you would add this to your belief, and that would give you, kind of get you to the next level. Also in those days, there was this widely held belief that physical things and spiritual things didn't really mix together well. Spiritual things were pure things, but physical things were evil things. God is a spirit, and therefore he can't interact with the physical world. So he would use mediators and these go-betweens, sort of like middlemen. Forces of nature would be one of those, or the stars, or angels, things like that. God wouldn't lower himself to the physical world, and so in order for you to get to God, you would have to go to these in-betweens, these middlemen, to make your sacrifices, to give your gifts. So if you're a a Bible background nerd, and you just like big words so you can impress your friends. We're talking about Neoplatonism, which eventually becomes Gnosticism, something that the early church after the apostles had to deal with. But this is the false teaching that is threatening the Colossian church. It's a man-made wisdom. It had been handed down over generations. And Paul says it's according to human tradition. But it also says it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. What in the world does that mean? The elemental spirits of the world. It could be a reference to elemental forces like the sun and the moon and the stars and, you know, wind and fire and such. But it may also be a reference to demonic forces. That's how Paul uses that phrase in the book of Galatians. It could very well be both. Because as you know, in the Bible, it teaches that false teaching isn't just false teaching. It's the teaching of demons. You see why Paul is so emphatic here. False teaching about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's not neutral. It's demonic. And Paul calls it empty deceit. It offers promises that it cannot deliver upon. It offers promises it can't deliver. Now think about that. It makes sense when, when, when you really think about what idolatry is, which is looking to something other than God to do the things that only God can do. It's idolatry. So think of a, a statue or something somebody bows down to or giving offerings to the, the moon or the sun. So the, the essence of idolatry is silliness. Like a man, so imagine a man doesn't have a thing. So that man goes and makes a thing. And makes that thing promise to give him the thing he doesn't have. But it can't give him the thing that he doesn't have because he made the thing. And he doesn't have the ability to give him. And that, that's, the, that's the silliness of idolatry. That's idol worship. Now, before you go and make fun of idol worshipers and people who dance around fires to make it rain... We modern people do the same thing. We look to non-things to give us things. 
we're just as easily deceived and enslaved by the human wisdom of our day. Let me give you an illustration. So I've been told that I use too many movie illustrations, and that's probably true, but I can't help myself. Uh, I am a, a fan of sophisticated film. And one of the more sophisticated films in recent memory is Kung Fu Panda. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this film, super sophisticated. Kung Fu Panda is built on this idea that there, uh, there is this, this dragon scroll, which is this ancient scroll, Kung Fu scroll, that only the best Kung Fu-er can get, and I suppose read, and then that would give that person phenomenal Kung Fu power to beat all the baddest bad people and save the world. Well, the main Kung Fu-er in the story is a panda named Po, and he opens up the, he gets a hold of the, the dragon scroll, and sorry to spoil the movie, but he opens the dragon scroll looking for the secrets of the universe and phenomenal Kung Fu power, and uh, he, he, he finds out that inside the scroll, it's just empty, reflective paper. And he, he sees his reflection in the dragon scroll, scroll and then he figures it out. Well, this is a modern movie, so big no, big, no big surprise here. But the, the secret to phenomenal kung fu power is not in ancient words. It's in y- yourself. It's in within. He sees the reflection. He, he figures it out. I have all I need for phenomenal kung fu power. It's, it's the same message in almost every movie now. But that's the point. Ancient people followed the stars looking for the ancient scroll that would give them power to overcome the problems in their life. So they believed that sacrificing to the moon and the sun and the stars and the planets. But we moderns, we, we look at that and we think that's really, that's really primitive. And so what we do is we follow our heart. Because that's so much different. We believe that we can be saved by sacrificing, not to the sun, but to ourselves. The ancients look to the sun to give them life, but we just look to ourselves. Really, it's the same thing. It's just a different target. We're both looking to get things from things that can't give us things. So it's a bit like a, a dude who's broke, starting a business. And he's the only customer for his business. And he's the only employee in his business. And he determines that he's providing himself such a worthwhile service that he's going to pay himself a million dollars a year. Well, how's that going to work? If he didn't start out with money, he can't pay himself money. But that's what we do when we look into ourselves for the solution to our problem. This is the philosophy and the human tradition that's been handed down to us by movies, novels, guidance counselors, pop psychology. In my day, it was Duso the Dolphin. (laughs) Really, it's the same thing that the ancients believed. It's all the same message. Enslaving, empty human wisdom invented by demons. Modern individualism Friends, it's just as demonic as bowing down to idols and totems and child sacrifice. It always has, and it always will leave us 
dissatisfied. And the reason? Well, you can see the reason in in this verse. To use Paul's phrase, it's not according to Christ. Which brings us to our second point. And the main point. Jesus is enough. This is verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This may be one of the most profound statements in the whole Bible. In Jesus Christ lives, dwells, resides the fullness, the whole fullness of the Godhead. Every part, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. Hebrews 1 calls Jesus the radiance of the glory of God. Earlier in the letter of Colossians, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So what can be said of of God is true of Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. He is the highest and final revelation of God. He is the form, the appearance of God. He is God made visible, shining forth as a person, a man, a thinking, feeling, loving man. To look upon Jesus is to look upon God himself. Not one part of God, not one facet of God, the whole fullness of God. So Jesus Jesus isn't like one room in the mansion of God's glory. Jesus is the whole mansion. Theologians sometimes speak of God's self-existence. God is the only self-existent being. He needs nothing. He depends on no one to be who he is. There is nothing outside of God that he needs to go and add to himself in order to be more God than he already is. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't grow. He doesn't improve. This is what it means to be God. To be absolutely, totally perfect in every aspect of his being. Which he has been. Forever. God is the most pleasing and most pleased being in existence. He perfectly sees himself perfectly. The most happy beholding that which gives him most happiness. He has before him, as he has always had before him, a perfect sight of the perfect image of the greatest source of perfect joy. God the Son. The second person of the Godhead. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite preachers and theologians, once encouraged his congregation to meditate on the glories of the fullness of God in Christ. He said to them, Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul 
So calm the billy, swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. In Jesus, the whole fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Do you see what Paul's getting at? Well, it makes no sense that to get more of God, you need something more than Jesus. You see, that's what Paul's getting at. It makes no sense at all that you would need something more of God by going to something more than Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have everything of God. This is the antidote of all false teaching. This is the cure for perpetual dissatisfaction. Every species of false doctrine comes from some denial of the fullness of God in Christ. Either denies the fullness of his person or the fullness of his work. Either it denies some part of Jesus' nature or some part of Jesus' atonement. So you would do well to inoculate yourself against this enslaving human wisdom by simply finding your fulfillment in Christ. So Paul is telling the Colossians, you will find no satisfaction in mediators and go-betweens and forces of nature. Well, these are just created things. Even angels, which we'll get to in the weeks ahead, will not satisfy their longing. They will leave them empty. They will leave them enslaved. They'll leave them always looking for more. Just like Leah with sons and no love. Just like Rachel with both and still wanting more. See the vanity of the human wisdom of our day. You will find the answer to your problem, friend, if you just believe in yourself. As if staring at myself in the mirror is going to make anything change. Don't you find that it's extended time of staring yourself in the mirror that got you into this problem in the first place? Al Mohler said it well. He said, we believe that our problem is external and that our solution is internal. Well, the Bible teaches that our problem is internal and our solution is external. He's right. The issue that we have isn't out there. The issue that we have is that we have looked to ourselves, that we have rejected God, that we have all decided to go our own way. We've sort of given God the middle finger and decided we just know better than you. And we've cut ourselves off from God in our sin. And this sin has caused deep dissatisfaction in our souls. And so, friend, the solution cannot be more of the same. The solution must come from outside of us. It must come from our Savior on the cross and on resurrection day. He's the source of our satisfaction. Know this so that you will be able to recognize the essence of the message of sin when you're being tempted. The essence of sin is this. In order to be satisfied, in order to be happy, you just have to go around Jesus and get it. As a pastor, I hear this all the time. I just want to be happy. 
as if God is standing between me and the very thing that I believe will make me happy. So if I just go around him and get that thing, then I will be happy. For no, God is the thing that will make us happy. That's how he's built your life. And for some of us like me, it takes a whole lifetime to figure that one out. Banging my head up against the rocks of dissatisfaction before I realize my satisfaction can only be found in Christ. Cornerstone here, the apostle loud and clear, Jesus is enough. Jesus is the whole fullness of everything your heart desires. My prayer is that the Lord would give us, this little church, a taste of the sweetness of Christ so that all else that makes little of Jesus would taste bitter to our tongue and that we would realize that he's all we need and that we have him. And because we have him, we have everything. Which brings us to the final point. Christians have everything. This is verse 10. And you, dear Christian, have been filled in him. You notice Paul's playing on words here. Empty deceit, fullness of God, filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. If you are in Christ here this morning, this is magnificently true of you. You have been filled in Jesus. The whole fullness of God, Jesus Christ, you have been filled in him. Your fulfillment is in Christ. The only reason sin can have a sway on us is when we forget about that. And we start acting as if we were empty and not full. Those who are fulfilled in Christ are hardly tempted by fulfillment in anything else. It's only starving people who would eat garbage. The person who is feasting at the king's table is not tempted to go dumpster diving. Fulfillment in Christ, dear one, is your weapon in the warfare against temptation. When being tempted... Seek your fulfillment in Christ. Because you've heard this before, every temptation asks the same question. Is God good? Is God good enough in this moment? From Eden to the internet, from the beginning to today, It's the same message. Will God give you the thing that you want? Or will he hold out on you? Overcome sin and temptation by preaching this truth to yourself, that Jesus is enough. And that if I'm a Christian, I've been filled in him. So when you're being tempted to lie in order to protect yourself or to manipulate someone in order to get what you want, preach 
Psalm 84, 11 over yourself. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Whatever good thing that you think you need that you will get by lying or manipulating, remember, it will not be withheld from you. Turn and look to Christ. Jesus is all you need. When you're being tempted to steal, preach Philippians 4.19 over yourself. God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Whatever you hope to get by stealing, know that God will provide. Turn. Look to Christ. Jesus is all you need. And you're full in him. When you're being tempted toward retaliation, Preach Psalm 9-8 over yourself. The Lord judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Preach that to yourself. God will be just. He sees that issue clearer than you. He knows justice better than you. Turn. Look to Christ. Be satisfied with Jesus' justice. When you're being tempted to despise authority, preach Romans 13.1 to yourself. There's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God has placed this person in authority over me. And though I may not agree with him or her, I know that God is good and that God is for me. And so I turn to Christ. I trust him and satisfied him. When you're being tempted to anxiety, Preach 1 Peter 5, 7 to yourself, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus cares for me. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to know the future. I just have to trust him. I just have to know that he is good and that he loves me and cares for me. And so I could turn away from that temptation, look to Christ, And be satisfied in him, no matter what I can or can't see. Find your fulfillment in Christ. Come to him empty and be filled. If you're here and you're not a Christian, delighted that you're in church today. This is the best news for you. The only qualification for receiving eternal life is this. That you need eternal life. You, you just got to be empty, that's all. You just got to be a sinner. And this is the best part. You are. We all are. God only takes sinners. So if you're a sinner, you're qualified. Turn to Jesus today. Bring the emptiness that you have to him. Repent of your sins. Trust in him. And you will be filled in him. And then tell someone about it. Whoever brought you to church today, tell them about it. If no one brought you to church, you came on your own, I'd love to talk to you with, uh, about that afterwards. Just meet me in the foyer on the way out. Sweet Rachel and poor Leah and the bonehead Jacob, they all suffered the same ailment. It's the same ailment you suffer from and I suffer from. We're perpetually dissatisfied people. But God has not left us to that emptiness, to that enslaving, empty promise of the wisdom of this age. God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ.
Jesus is enough. Just what we read at the beginning. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is the fullness of God. Find your fulfillment in him. I want to close with some encouraging words from an old Baptist preacher named Alexander McLaren. He said, Why should we leave the fountain of living waters to hew out for ourselves with infinite pains, broken cisterns that can hold no water? All we need is Christ. Let us lift up our eyes from the lower earth and all creatures and behold no man any more as Lord and his helper, save Jesus only, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Please stand for the prayer of confession. The Lord has revealed himself to us through his word. And through this revelation of himself, we recognize as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. Whatever that is, I'm not like that. We're different. There's something between us. And so like Isaiah, we go to the Lord in prayer and we say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And so we go to the Lord and we pray a prayer of repentance. So if you join with me in prayer. Lord of glory and God of all grace, you are the God of mercy. We come to you through Jesus, your Son, the one in whom dwells the whole fullness of deity. Would you make Jesus' name great in this place, in our lives? Lord, we thank you for revealing to us that Jesus is enough, that he is all we need. We have heard your truth this morning. We thank you for giving us ears to hear. Lord, we admit that we have often sought to find fulfillment outside of Jesus. We've looked for satisfaction in all the wrong places. In drink, in men, in women, in children, in work, in toys, in sex, in influence, in money. Lord, we've found them all lacking. Realize they've made us empty promises. And we've been enslaved by these things. And in your mercy today, Father, you've shown us that Jesus is enough. Will you forgive us? Will you forgive us, your people, for having despised Jesus? For functionally denying the truth that he is the whole fullness of God. And will you write this truth on us? Will you write that Jesus is enough over our hearts? Write it as it were over our eyelids so that everywhere we look, we would see Jesus is enough. Keep it before our eyes tomorrow as we go back to work. Keep it before our eyes today as we gather as members. Keep it before our eyes today as we deal with our children, our grandchildren, our co-workers, 
our neighbors. Write this truth on our heart that we have been filled in Him. In light of the glory of this precious Savior, may the things of this world grow strangely dim. Amen.